Uh, we are in Luke and I am terrified because this is uh, a passage uh, at the end of Luke 17 that, that I have dreaded for some time. Um, this, this one and Luke chapter 21 as well, uh, they are difficult, controversial uh, rabbit holes that you can get lost in uh, and I don't want to get lost in it. Uh, any discussion of what's known as the end times will always be tricky. And uh, this, this is a tricky passage. Um, hopefully we will not get lost in the fine details, but more sort of skirt over the passage and, and pull out application and how to respond and how to live in light of the things that Jesus teaches in it. So let me read Luke chapter 17. Verses 20 to 37. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, Here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord, they asked. He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Well, amen. Thanks for coming this morning. Hope you enjoyed the message. <laughs> And have a great day. <laughs> yeah, tricky, tricky passage. And discussions of such things can provoke disagreement between people. There are two extremes. There are those who obsess over the end times, the last days. They teach endlessly about it, prepare their charts and timelines, and even go as far as predicting dates when Jesus will return. This is very dangerous stuff. On the other hand, there are those who ignore it and dismiss any teaching on it as irrelevant and a waste of time. What bearing has that on the here and now, they might say. This is also dangerous because there's no teaching of Jesus that is irrelevant 
And he spoke to his disciples at length multiple times about his return and about the future. So this is really important. It's a confusing topic, frequently couched in language that is described as apocalyptic, that came easily to those who heard it in the first century and doesn't come easily to us due to the imagery and the symbolism that can be involved in it. So as I say, we're not going to try to go on a deep dive this morning. That's for the the seminary classroom or the lecture theatre. We're trying to take Jesus' sobering words here very seriously and see how we can live in response. The Pharisees come first of all and they're going to bring a question to Jesus. Remember in the last chapters of Luke all along this journey, these guys have been a constant vexation to Jesus and he has challenged them over and over again about how they live. In Luke 14, he challenges them about their inhospitality, about the way they conduct themselves at their feasts and their gatherings and overlook the outcast and the poor person. He has challenged them about their hard-hearted religious attitudes in the parable of the lost sons and their father. He has challenged them about having no care for the poor in the parable about the rich man and Lazarus. He has challenged them also in Luke 16 about divorce. These Pharisees, they would divorce their wives in a moment if, if there was something that they did not like. He has challenged them about their love of money. He has challenged them about their unforgiveness. All of these things that as he has gone along the journey with these guys just on his heels the whole time, he has taught about these matters and challenged them. They come along and they ask him this question then in verse 20 and 21 about when the kingdom of God will come. And Jesus, who's always a wee bit mischievous in his responses to the Pharisees, instead of telling them when it will come, he tells them the ways not to know that it has come. And he says to them, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is. So what does this word observe actually mean in, in verse 20. The Pharisees wanted a sign. They had been listening to Jesus. They had witnessed him healing as, as recently as a few verses ago, healing 10 lepers. And they still were, were expecting a sign that could be observed. The culture they lived in was big into signs. And around about this time, there were various nut jobs going around the area claiming that the kingdom of God was coming and that certain signs were about to be fulfilled. There was a guy called Thutis and he said that the Jordan was going to open up and that was a sign that the kingdom of God was coming. There was an Egyptian guy wandering about who said Jerusalem's walls were going to fall down just like Jericho's walls fell down. And there was a Greek fellow running about talking about wonders in the desert just like in the wilderness. So they were in a culture where people were constantly saying, this sign is going to happen and it's a proof that the kingdom of God has come. So there's a general expectation that, there, that there's something that they will see, something that they can observe that will say that the kingdom is coming. 
But the word observe could also be to do with their rule keeping because the Pharisees were big into observing the law, observance of the rules that, that the law commanded and that they added to the law. For example, they believed that if all Israel observed Sabbath perfectly for two weeks in a row, then the kingdom would come. That was all that was required. And hence, maybe that's why they got so ticked off with Jesus every time he kept doing stuff on the Sabbath that they said you shouldn't be doing. Because they had this idea. Can you just imagine being a Pharisee? And last Saturday, that last Sabbath, as far as you know, everybody kept the Sabbath. And now here we get to the next one and maybe we're going to make it and everything's going well. And then Jesus heals somebody and wrecks it. So they, they had an idea that if they observed the rules, the kingdom would come. And Jesus says, no. He says the kingdom of, is, is not going to come as something to be observed. As some great signs in the sky or as your ability to keep all the rules well enough so that the kingdom comes. And the reason that it's not like that, Jesus says, is it's in your midst. In your midst. Now, your Bible might say within you. And that is, is a translation that, that basically the vast majority of modern scholars have, have sort of politely pushed to one side because it's a, it can be a bit misleading. The kingdom of God is within you starts to sound like it is an internal, very private thing in our hearts that does not sort of affect anything beyond that. The kingdom of God is within you. Of course, our relationship with Jesus is private. Of course, we have to have personal salvation, personal devotion. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about the coming of the kingdom. We never read in the Bible, to my knowledge, of the kingdom of God entering somebody. We read of people entering the kingdom. So we don't read of the kingdom coming into them. And remember who Jesus is talking to right now. He's talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to the Jews who are opposing him. Uh, just to remind you the sort of stuff he said to them in, in John 8, he said to them, you belong to your father, the devil. I don't think he's going to then say to that same group of people, God's kingdom is in your heart. <laughs> that would be a slight contradiction. So Jesus here, when he says about the kingdom is in your midst, I don't think he's saying that it is within you. What he's saying is it is among you. He's saying there are not going to be observable signs of the kingdom coming because it's already here and you're missing it. He is the evidence that the kingdom of God has come. And he is in their midst. And he's saying to these Pharisees, you're blind. You need to open your eyes and see what I am doing among you in your midst. It's already here. It is not something that is a way off in the future to be looked towards. It's here. And the kingdom of God is wherever Jesus is to be found. Wherever God's rule is being exercised in people's lives. Wherever people are being reconciled to God. Reconciled to one another. Wherever forgiveness is being received or for forgiveness is being given. Wherever there is generosity and kindness and love and compassion. That's the kingdom of God. Jesus has been doing kingdom stuff 
all the way through the Gospel of Luke. And he's saying to them, guys, it's here. (laughs) I'm here. And wherever I am, the kingdom is. The kingdom of God has already come. And you'll hear people sometimes when they're teaching on the on the the sort of the future and the parts of the Bible that speak to the future, you'll maybe hear the phrase the last days or the end times. The last days, just to be utterly biblical about this, you're living in them. You're living in them. I don't need to put a chart up or timeline up or read the newspaper and, and, and quote a few verses and say, oh, it looks like we're living in the last days. We are living in the last days. They started in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 2 that Joel alluded to earlier where Peter was preaching and quoting Joel, different Joel though, the the Spirit is poured out on the church and, and that is the last days. The last days has begun. We think that they're going to be a wee short period of time. No, the last days so far has lasted about 2,000 years. And in Hebrews chapter 1, The writer says, in these last days, him writing back then, referred to them as the last days, God has spoken to us by his son. So it's not something, the last days is not something away off out there in the future. It's now. You are and you always have been living in this period called, biblically, the last days. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is already come. It's already in your midst. Don't sit around looking at the sky, waiting for something to happen that will indicate it's time to get up and start doing some God stuff. Jesus is in your midst. He said to them in Luke 11, If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When you see me delivering people, when you see me setting people free from addictions or from demons or from whatever, when you see me come and and change and transform and restore people's lives, the kingdom of God has come. That's why whenever you're praying, you pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That is not a prayer for something away out in the future. That's a prayer that right now, today, not, you're not praying that right now, today, Jesus will return. You're praying that his kingdom will be manifested in this world. That his rule and his reign and his power will be shown in your interactions with people. Kingdom come. Tom Wright, in his New Testament for Everyone translation, puts it like this. God's kingdom is within your grasp. And, and I ex- he explains that in a way that I think just catches this. The, the, the kingdom is right there in front of you. It's in your midst and the challenge is to reach out and grab it. To engage with it. Not just to sit and look at it, not to hope that it will come in the future, but it is here now and you have to join in with the kingdom program of what Jesus is doing. He will use people, us, you and me, to see his kingdom established. If you and I engage with people and see their lives enriched and see them coming to Jesus and learning about Jesus, and learning how to walk with Jesus, and how to follow Jesus, you've just experienced the kingdom of God. Because his kingdom is being established in that life. We're to reach out, and we're to grasp it. Tom Wright says, the ball is in your court. 
What are you going to do with the fact that Jesus is here working in your midst, doing kingdom things? You're going to get with it and join him in that and be part of the kingdom. Or are we going to just sit around? These Pharisees that Jesus has challenged and rebuked because of their love of money and their unforgiveness and their divorce and their hard-hearted religion, their inhospitality, their lack of care for the poor. He's basically saying to them, you're missing it. I'm here and I'm addressing all of those things and you need to change. You need to stop wasting your time running after money holding grudges in unforgiveness, being hard-hearted in your religion. You've got to start showing some care for the poor because the kingdom has come already in your midst, within your grasp. See, religion blinds people. and the, The Pharisees, it's amazing to watch these guys as they follow after Jesus and see him heal, even raise the dead. And yet still, don't get it. They are so blinded by their religion. And one of the things I've noticed in in the past in terms of studying the end times or reading books that are focused on the future is that a lot of the time those who are very obsessed with these things are not so obsessed with Jesus Jesus himself. They, they, They love to discuss and nitpick and argue and get into fine details but they just aren't that obsessed with the one who is returning. Jesus gives the disciples two verses. Or sorry, he gives the Pharisees two verses. And then he turns to the disciples and he gives them eight times as many verses. Now we're not going to go as slow now as we've just gone, so don't worry. But they, the, the Pharisees have come and asked a question and he gives them a very, very brief, curt response. And then he turns to his disciples. Jesus will always give more teaching, more time, more attention to those who are committed to him, who follow him, who love him. And he, he begins to speak to the, to the disciples. And this is difficult stuff. He says to them, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. And nobody really knows exactly what that refers to. There's several things it could refer to. It could refer to the time after Jesus is crucified when the disciples are longing for him and he's not there. It could refer to the age of the church when he has ascended, he has filled the church with his spirit, poured out his spirit, and he's not physically among his people. He's present by the power of his spirit and that there's a longing for a more tangible revelation of him in the midst. It could be that. That could be what he's saying that his people will long for. But either way, there's a, there's a, there's a, a yearning and a desire for him and for his presence. And he says to them to have nothing to do with anyone who tries to localize what Jesus is doing. You have to go here to encounter him or you have to go there or he has shown up. He says, have nothing to do with that. Have nothing to do with that. It's not localized. He describes it as being in verse 24, his, his day, the son of man, whatever that day is, it will be like lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. This is not something that's going to happen quietly. 
When Jesus came in his first advent, when he was born in Bethlehem, it was in a little nowhere town in the, in just that nobody had ever heard of or heard of. A baby was born. It couldn't have been quieter. It was earth shattering in terms of its implications, but it couldn't have been quieter. When he returns at what's called his glorious appearing, no one's going to miss it. There is no chance that you will not see what's going on. And he says then at the end in verse 25 there, he, he must first suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus reminds the disciples, he's told them already way back at the start of the journey in chapter 9, he told them twice that he had to suffer and they just don't get it. <laughs> they don't want to accept that, that, that he has to suffer. That's going to be his experience and it's also going to be our experience. So before before his, his ascension, before his resurrection, he has to go through this period of suffering. And we likewise, before we see him return, have to go through suffering as well. Luke reminds us of this again in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, that we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. We keep getting reminded because we keep forgetting. I don't know about you, but I keep getting taken by surprise when hard things happen <laughs> you know you keep whenever something difficult comes along some some just challenging period or or, or whatever it is uh, and you, you realize you're suffering you might not be suffering physically it could be emotionally relationally whatever but you're suffering and for some reason you feel surprised <laughs> it shouldn't happen and I keep on in those moments reminding myself, I have chosen to follow the one who was crucified. Okay, it's not going to be an easy ride. Jesus himself told us that, that in the world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So what will it be in those days when, whenever, you know, the, the Pharisees have come asking for a sign. Whenever Jesus returns and the kingdom comes, what will it be like? Will, will we see things that we can piece together and, and start to say, yes, this is definitely going to happen soon? Jesus says no. In verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. Listen to the normality of life. People were eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, then the flood came and destroyed them all. Everything was just proceeding as normal. Nothing strange was taking place. And then sudden, instant destruction. The same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. Just all the normal daily routine of life. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Nothing dramatic. But then whenever he comes, it will be a sudden revelation and a sudden judgment. These are sobering thoughts. And this is serious stuff, and it should affect how we pray. It should affect how we pray. Every day in the, in the news, there are things, especially at the minute, you, you read the global news uh, and you just see tension and you see everything seems to be a powder keg. But Jesus said, 
whenever he returns, everybody's going to be just in, in a comfort zone of things. Not in a comfort zone of everything being perfect, but it's just going to be business as usual. It's going to feel like a normal day. And then suddenly, suddenly, I don't know what it looks like, but suddenly he comes in the midst of a normal day. These wars, these rumors of wars, these earthquakes, all of these things, we can see creation groaning. It's always been groaning and it, it will continue to groan and it will get worse and worse. These birth pangs that Jesus talked about that precede his coming. But the attitude of mankind will be business as usual. Business as usual. And it should affect how we pray. It should affect how we live. Every, every now and again, if I'm outside, particularly after dark, which obviously is quite a lot at the minute, with it's dark nearly all the time, but you just look up at the sky and you think, maybe today, maybe tonight, maybe tomorrow. There's nothing needs to happen before his return. There's nothing that needs to be fulfilled there again, people get down rabbit holes and they talk about the temple in Jerusalem being rebuilt because they have vastly misunderstood Old Testament prophecy. The temple has been rebuilt. It's us. <laughs> we don't need to wait for a physical temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. There's nothing needs to happen. It could, he could come now. It's sobering, serious stuff. It's stuff that brings great hope to us as followers of Jesus. But it should also bring just a great sense of weightiness to our prayer lives. To those we know and love who are, who are lost. It should affect how we pray. And he, he goes on to say that those who are on the housetop with possessions inside should, should not go down and get them. Those who are in the field, don't, don't run back to the house to grab anything. What do you like when the fire alarm, the fire drill, you know, goes off and work? Sometimes you know it's a drill and sometimes you don't. But I haven't, you know, if I, if I thought it was a fire, I'd be grabbing the Mac. Okay, I'd be grabbing the Mac, I'd be grabbing the iPad and the phone and then I would, then I would run uh, because I'm never too far away from them. But Jesus said, no, no, don't grab the Mac. You should have it backed up to iCloud. You don't need to grab it. He said, run. When, when, this, when this happens, you don't grab anything. You don't stop. You don't lift your coat. You get out and you don't go back. There's, there's that urgency. There's that sense that there's no time to prepare. And I wonder, do the Pharisees, do they want a sign? Because they know their lives are a mess. And if they could just have a sign, if something just happened... If the Jordan opened or if crazy stuff happened uh, around the walls of Jerusalem and they all collapsed someday. If, if some of this stuff happened, Jesus would be real handy because it would let us know that it's close and we could actually go and, and fix a few things. That's probably why they want a sign. But there's no time. Whenever he comes, there is no time to prepare. It is a proper deadline. It's not one of those deadlines that, that I find in my life an awful lot of the time there's a deadline set and then a wee voice comes and says, Sir, I'll hand it in tomorrow. <laughs> you know, printer wasn't working. Whatever. No, this is a real deadline and there's no shifting it and there's no warning of it apart from the warning that we're already getting in Scripture. There'll be no time for preparation. 
These guys in their unforgiveness, holding grudges, in their love of money, in their lack of generosity and compassion for the poor, in their lack of hospitality, and all of these things that they need to put right, they're not going to get a chance. Nobody is. Because there's no time to prepare when the king comes, now is the time to prepare. Once that, once that alarm goes, once that moment comes, he says, don't even grab your coat. Now is the time to prepare before that moment comes. What are the things in this world that we are tied to more than we're tied to Jesus? What are the things in this world, if you were standing outside the house and the alarm went, that you would think, oh, I just wish I could go in and grab, you know, the possessions, the mindsets, the attitudes. Lot's wife looked longingly back towards Sodom and she got destroyed. Now is the time for preparation. What are the things that you need to put right? remember a guy coming in here one time and I think it was it was either the first week he came in or the second week he came in and he phoned me a couple of days later and he said David he says God's convicting me and I says what's wrong he says my taxes aren't in order <laughs> and I we hadn't preached about money and hadn't mentioned money or anything to do with money or tax or anything but just in the presence of God he felt the spirit putting a finger on him and he put it right and it cost him a lot to put it right but that urgency came that he needed to, to put something right. What is it that you need to put right or that I need to put right? If you knew Jesus was going to return at three o'clock this afternoon, what would you do between now and then? Who are the people that you need to forgive? That we, we grudges just seem to find their way back in and that you need to forgive and cut loose and release. What are the things you need to put right? What are the things you need to stop doing? What are the things you need to start doing? Are the people you maybe, you know that you've deeply grieved them and you know you're responsible for it. And really, if you knew Jesus was coming back in a couple of hours, you might give them a call and say, listen, I'm sorry about that. Will you forgive me for that? What are the things that we need to do? Because there will be no time when he returns to do anything. You won't even get to lift your Mac. Nothing. And there's a choice. Those who try to keep their life will lose it. Those who lose their life will preserve it. If we try to just build our own little kingdom, like the Pharisees, keeping rules, gathering money, withholding forgiveness, holding grudges, keeping those who have hurt us uh, at a distance because we don't want to forgive them, we'll lose everything. Our option, our only option is to lose and give up our lives and, and follow Jesus and receive the life that he gives. He paints a sobering picture of separation, which again should affect how we pray. God, forgive me for my lack of prayer sometimes for the lost. There's going to be a separation that is absolutely brutal and final. He says in verse 34, on that night, Two people will be in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together, one will be taken and the other left. Just complete separation. 
Now, what could this mean? This could mean two things, and you know what? It really doesn't matter which one it means if I'm going to give you the two options. This could mean that out of those two people who are in one bed, the one that is taken is taken to safety to be with Jesus, and the one who's left is left to be destroyed. And that then gets mixed in with a verse that you might be familiar with in 1 Thessalonians 4, and then is used to to teach an idea known as the rapture, that Christians are all going to disappear someday and go and be with Jesus, and then total chaos breaks out on the earth for seven years. I personally don't buy into that interpretation at all. I used to, I I just don't. Um, Jesus will come and his people will rise, but I think that's it. I think that's it. I don't think there's any sort of in-between period, um, and I I have looked at it at length. What I believe the word take here, I don't believe it means take away to keep safe while judgment falls on those who are left behind. I believe to be taken away is to be taken away to judgment. In the scriptures, to be taken away is always negative. If you look at, at Matthew's Uh, version of the Olivet Discourse where Jesus uses this phrase again. He says about in the days of Noah, the flood came and took them all away. That's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now, if, if you had the option there, just look at that word took, taken, take. If you had the option in Noah's day, do you want to be taken away? That means you're going swimming. Or do you want to be preserved in the ark. I don't want to be taken. <laughs> I don't want to be taken. God's people were taken into exile in Babylon. I don't want to be taken. Being taken is not a good thing. Being left is what we want. And in this context, where, where Jesus talks about two people in the one bed, one will be taken and the other left, in my opinion, the one taken is being taken to judgment. Because it's always negative in Scripture. And I believe it also just it just ties up with the bigger picture of how Jesus teaches in these things. But either way, it's a minor thing that will not fall out of it. Either way, there's going to be a separation that will run through every level of society. Separation. Okay? And I'm under deep conviction here about my prayer life. Separation. Come on, think. Let the Holy Spirit just bring those people in front of our faces from whom we will be separated. It's really sobering stuff. It's really sobering stuff. Then there's a, at the end, there's strange little phrase. Jesus is asked, where? The disciples say, where? Where's this going to happen? He's just told them. Don't look for a here or a there, but they still say where. And he says, where there's a dead body, the vultures will gather. I don't don't know. I just don't know. Um, one, One suggestion, and again, if you read about Jesus' prophetic words and about his return and and the different things he says in these contexts. A lot of people, and I think there's a lot of value in this idea, a lot of people see a lot of what Jesus said about the future being fulfilled in AD 70 when Rome sacked Jerusalem and just 
absolutely ran havoc through the city of Jerusalem and destroyed and crucified tens of thousands of people outside the city until they ran out of wood to crucify them on. And, and there is the idea that some of Jesus' words were fulfilled in AD 70 and some of them then will be fulfilled in his future glorious appearing. And then there's the suggestion vultures can also be translated as eagles and the idea eagle is what would have been on the Roman flag. And Jesus warning his disciples, when you see the eagles, when you see these banners and these flags coming, run. Get out of Jerusalem. Don't stick around and think you're tough when you're going to fight it out against these guys. Run. He needs his, his followers to get out of there whenever they see that. That might be uh, the understanding of what, what Jesus is saying there. As we finish, the key points that I want to take from this. Not arguments about raptures and what the word taken means and charts and timelines. Key points. The kingdom has come. It is within your grasp right now. Right now. It is not a future thing that you are waiting for. Theologians talk about Jesus, the kingdom coming as being already, not yet. It has already come. It is not yet fully consummated. That will happen at the end. But the kingdom, Jesus says clearly, has already come in him. Get with the program. And let's be the people who do the Jesus stuff and see the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So the kingdom has come. The king is coming. There will be a future global cataclysmic return of the king. He will return. It will be unmistakable, unmissable, (laughs) sudden. It will be accompanied with judgment. All of us long for judgment. All of us long for wrong things to be made right. God will judge. He will put right every wrong. He will restore all things. All things. There will be new heaven and there will be new earth. He will wipe away all tears. There will be no more death, no more pain, no more separation. That day is coming. No one knows when it will be. But it will come and it will come suddenly. And now is the time to prepare. In your individual walk with God, in the things in your life that you know you need to put right, that you put them right with the help of the Holy Spirit and maybe with with journeying with another believer in, in just putting some things right, forgiving some people. Now is the time to prepare because when that day comes and when the king returns, there's no opportunity. There'll be no, you've got two hours, you've got two weeks. It's like, that's it. That's it. Sobering, sobering stuff. Let's pray and let's worship.